0: When Wendy Shang was growing up, she loved to read and read all kinds of books. But what she couldn't find? Books with Asian-American characters. You
1: mean books where characters looked like me? Uh, no, no.
0: There was, in fact, just one. And Wendy still remembers her all these years later.
1: I'll tell you, um, Judy Blume will always have a special place in my heart, not just because she writes so wonderfully, but there was a character in her book, Blubber, who was Chinese-American. And that was the first time I saw someone who had a background similar to mine in any form of pop culture. She was Tracy Wu. She was friends with the main character. And just the fact that she was there, I was so enormously grateful for that.
0: Today, Wendy Shang writes her own children's books with vivid and multidimensional Asian-American characters.
1: Sometimes I feel like a toy being pulled between them, each grandmother hoping I'll be more Jewish or more Chinese. But right then, if you asked me what I was, I would say a singer.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, we've got reading recommendations for children and adults, all from the broad, diverse, and wonderful world of Asian American and Pacific Islander writers. Sylvia Chong is a professor of English at the University of Virginia. She was hearing from lots of people about Kathy Park Hong's new book, Minor Feelings. So she sat down to figure out why it was speaking so well to Asian American friends. And so when I sat down to read it, there was
2: so much she said that was on point, uh, Like she was reading my mind. Um, So she's a poet, but this is a set of essays. uh, And she talks a lot about being a poet in in the memoir, but it's not exactly like a story of her life. It's about the ways in which she learned to think about herself. It's not quite discovering your identity. I think she always understood that she was a Korean-American, but sort of understanding like the ways in which she dealt with being Korean-American All the weird adaptations that we as minorities in America make and how messed up they are in a way and how long it took her to realize that her way of being in the world was a sort of a betrayal. It's about the Asian American experience, but it's also just about what it means to not fit into a world and to not know what to do about that and whether there's anything actually to do about that.
0: Read a bit from Minor Feelings and help us understand what we need to know leading up to your recitation.
2: Here's a quote, um, kind of a meta quote. It's about why she writes. Um, but I thought it really spoke to me because it's something that a lot of Asian American creatives, you know, writers, filmmakers, poets, musicians, struggle with. Like, you're an Asian American and you're making stuff, Um like, how Asian-American is the stuff you're making? <laughs> That's, this is one of the things I think a lot of people wonder. Should I go for something universal? Do I speak on behalf of all Asian-Americans? Do I pretend that um, I'm just me and no one else is like me? It's a weird struggle. So this is a quote from a section about bad English, which when I read, I I have to tell you this story, Sarah. I immediately said, my husband needs to read this. My <laughs> husband is also Asian-American. He's biracial. South Asian descent, but he grew up with parents who were uh, his dad, who's from India, very pro assimilation. Assimilation is just what immigrants do, and he, you know, learned European languages. He speaks French and German fluently, and he always tried to like fit in and assimilate and speak the language of where he's from. And he could never understand why my mother, who's been in this country for forty years, still can't speak English. I'm not going to uh, read a part about mothers not speaking English, but this essay really spoke to me about how even when you speak English perfectly, it's always this fraught thing when you're a minority. It's not just about whether you speak well enough, but whether you deserve human rights, human decency as a result of how you speak, how your very accent betrays you no matter how much you try to fit in and and how complicated that all was. So like I remember thinking, my husband has to read this, maybe he'll understand why my mother still can't hold a conversation in English after 40 years. And she's never said why, but I think it's, you know, part of the same reasons. It's just hard to hard to stand for everything that people think you stand for when you open your mouth. All right, so let me read this um this couple paragraphs from Kathy's essay on bad English. She said Students have asked me, how do I write about racial identity without always reacting to whiteness? The automatic answer is, tell your story. But this too can be a reaction to whiteness, since white publishers want the Muslim experience or the Black experience. They want ethnicity to be siloed because it's easier to understand, easier to brand. Ever since I started writing, I was not just interested in telling my story, but also in finding a form, a way of speech that decentered whiteness. I settled on bad English because, as the artist Greg Bordowitz said about radical art, it bypasses social media algorithms and consumer demographics by bringing together groups who wouldn't normally be in the same room together.
0: What do you hear her saying that
2: resonates with you? I think we're also afraid to speak on behalf of someone. You know, we're afraid that someone will yell us down and say, you don't speak on behalf of me. Um, and, And so then we just end up speaking on behalf of, you know, I'm a first-generation Chinese-American, you know, raised in California, cis-hetero-female. Cis uh, like, we, we write only about us, and we can't imagine that anyone else shares our feelings or our experiences. I really identify with that fear of hers. And at the same time, I also think, you know, her whole book is... a kind of a rebuttal of this because she's speaking nearby asian Americanness and she hits it right on the nose. I think that's one of the funny things about identity politics. You know, people think it's like, speak who you are, speak your truth, you know, as she says, uh, but there's no real one truth. But surprisingly, you speak what bizarre, messed up, strange, unique things happen to you. <laughs> and there's something about it yeah. that other people can latch on to. She she can't sell that as the Asian-American experience, and yet it is the Asian-American
0: experience. Speaking of pop culture, there's another current, really popular author, Michelle Downer, and she's been called the indie rock star of Asian-American lit right now. Tell me about Michelle Downer. What has she written that has so resonated with people?
2: Oh, my goodness. Now, she has this memoir um, called Crying in H-Mart. And it was based on an essay I read a couple years ago. She published in New Yorker, uh, which had me bawling when I read it. As the kids say, it's all the feels. <laughs> it just hits all these emotional marks of um, longing and family and loss and being a minority in America. So she's crying in H-Mart. It's funny. I'm about to go visit the H-Mart um, nearby here because I, I live <laughs> two hours away from a major Asian enclave. And I'm the kind of Asian American who has to make pilgrimages to do my shopping because I just can't do it in, my, in the town where I live. What is an H-Mart? Oh, my. So H-Mart <gasps> right. it's one of a, several kinds of stores. It's a super duper Asian supermarket. Oh. So H-Mart is a Korean version of um, what Chinese Americans might think of as 99 Ranch Market. It's a supermarket chain, but it's humongous. The stores are humongous. You go in and you have 60 kinds of roasted seaweed, um, a whole bar of banchan or or the little sort of um, um, appetizers that people put out before a meal. Uh, you have like beautifully individually wrapped uh, uh, exotic fruits that you can't get at your, you know, local supermarket. Um, you get 20,000 kinds of rice, you know, brown sweet rice, brown non-sweet rice, uh, sushi rice, purple rice, um, barley to cook with your rice. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things that the book is about is how um, shopping at a place like H Mart is not just shopping. You know, I guess a lot of people, anyone can go and shop there. But for her, and I think for a lot of us, shopping is... Um, an act that connects us to our families, you know, because you remember going shopping with your parents, you know, being dragged to the supermarket three hours away because, you, you know, they can't get what they want, you know, in town. Um, going up and down the aisles for an hour because you're only going to stop <laughs> there once a month. Yeah. Um, and also she wrote it. I, I haven't lost my parents yet, but she recently lost her mother to cancer. And when when she wrote about crying in H Mart, it was also how the first time she went shopping after her mother died, she realized she couldn't just call her mom up on the cell phone and say, "Hey, mom, which which brand of rice do I buy?" Like you not know, Oh my god, uh, that which... gives me chills. Right? Yeah, it was that little thing that made her realize that her mom was gone. Right. So I think it's it, it's part of you know Asian American grief, uh, longing for something of home. Oh, and and plus uh, Michelle Downer is biracial, so her um, she couldn't get this from her father. Um, so it's like her mother, uh, was her last sort of bodily connection to being Korean. I mean, I feel this way too. Like I'm Chinese American. I'm first generation. I'm not that removed. And yet I have to Google things. Like there's things I don't know. When is Chinese New Year? If, if I don't, (laughs) if I don't ask my mother, I have to Google it. It's not like it's tattooed into my skin or, you know, listed on my iPhone holidays, um, those little silly things. It's like when we don't have our mothers and, and fathers and, and aunties and uncles and grandparents around, we, we're we left with Google, which is not the worst thing in the world <laughs> because Google won't bother you about whether you're eating well or gaining weight. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I think it's a great memoir for people who are interested in Asian food but don't always understand um, the meanings behind eating and buying and cooking Asian food when you're not in Asia it, sort of, it means a different thing. It's different than just going out to your local restaurant and, and eating the cool food of
0: the day. Recently, you've been in conversation with your local school district about a book or more to add to the high school reading curriculum. Yes. There's a
2: lot of new memoirs about the Vietnamese-American experience. Um, but one of my favorite ones is this one called The Best We Could Do by T Bui. And it spoke to me on so many levels. Um, one, I read it when I was pregnant with my second child and she frames her story as trying to rediscover her parents' life while she was pregnant. So there's all these pictures of like childbirth and breastfeeding and all the horrible things that you go through when you, know, when you have a newborn. Um, so it made me really emotional the first time I read it, but I've taught it to kids who've never given birth. And it's it's a really great read because it's a memoir that reframes Thi the, the author, as a child. Um, so a lot of it is told through a child's eyes and it's a graphic memoir, it's a graphic novel. So we see her drawing herself as a child, reliving um, her parents and her exodus from Vietnam uh, after the war, they were boat people. They spent time in refugee camps. Uh, they were relocated to San Diego. I think it's such an important addition to the curriculum because it reminds people that not all Asian Americans are immigrants looking for the American dream. Some people come because they have no choice. Um, And and here, you know, when we talk about refugee experience, this includes not only Vietnamese Americans, but Syrian Americans, uh, people from Central America, um, a lot of older refugees from Eastern Europe. Uh, Being a refugee is not exactly about the American dream. Sometimes it's about the American nightmare in a different way, because here you are fleeing your country because the U.S. was at war with it and, um, you can no longer live there because of that war. Um, but where can you go? Uh, and sadly, one of the places is the the place that was fighting, fighting in your country. But anyways, this memoir, uh, which our local high schools are starting to teach, um, It's part of an effort by a bunch of English professors like myself to get people to talk about race more in the English classroom so that it's not just something you talk about in social studies when you learn about slavery or Japanese-American incarceration, that you learn about it everywhere and that you don't just learn about it through the one or two texts that people know, like Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston, which is a great book but a very different kind of story.
0: Sylvia, this has been so fun talking with you. Thanks for talking on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. Sylvia Chong is a professor of English at the University of Virginia. Next, we'll hear from author Wendy Shang. Growing up, Wendy Shang, who's Chinese-American, didn't see many kids like her in the books that she read, but she loved reading books. Now Wendy's the author of several books for middle schoolers that feature Asian-American protagonists, and the author of a brand new children's picture book called *The Rice in the Pot Goes Round and Round*. She joins me along with Winita Giles, the executive director of the Virginia Children's Book Festival held at Longwood University each year. Winita, tell me about the annual children's book festival at Longwood University. It's a fairly small community, but thousands and thousands of kids come every year.
3: That's true. It has grown tremendously. I believe our other guest, Wendy Shang, was with us very early on, and I had started the festival because I was actually volunteering in a local children's library and I noticed that not many children were coming in and I couldn't understand why. Reading had always been so important to me and I dug around a little bit and found out some things that, you know, really um, worried me a bit, including that um, in Southside, Virginia, where Farmville is, where Longwood is, one in five adults is functionally illiterate and I thought this is not going to work at all, because it's really hard to become a lifelong reader if you don't come from a reading home. And so I thought, what can I do to stand in that gap for these kids? And so my my inclination was to make the greatest field trip anybody could ever possibly take. And in that first year in 2014, we had about 700 children come, which was really good, I think, for our first year. But in 2019, which was our Last in person festival, we had more than 16,000 children come. <sighs> and when we went virtual last year, uh, we had more than 30,000 children uh, who were able to attend virtually. So clearly we're filling a gap somewhere and it's far, it reaches far beyond just our local community. I don't even think there's 16,000 people in the whole county. What's fun about it? What are people getting when they come? Oh gosh, I thought that these kids who didn't have you know, a reading background or struggled or just wanted to do better, needed to be more involved. So let's say Peter Brown, who wrote The Wild Robot, he might go to a bookstore or school visit and stand up in front of kids with a slideshow and he talks and that's the end of it. But when he came here, I put him to a lot more work. Mm -hmm. I actually um, worked with Longwood's ITTIP department and we got 20 robots of varying ability and the kids got to work with Peter out in the natural world on campus and put the robots through the challenges his robot had in his own book. We have a hip-hop and children's literature program where kids get to make their own videos and write their own rap songs with professional rap artists and young adult authors. And we even had um, kids get their hair cut by a barber when we had Derek Barnes and Gordon C. James come for Crown Ode to a Fresh Cut. I'm just always looking for something else to get kids interested.
0: Wendy Shang, are you finding more and more that children really know who the authors are? They know the book. They know that you're the author and you're a child's rock star.
1: Uh, it really depends. You know immediately when you're going to have a school visit, because when you walk in and the receptionist is excited to meet you, you know that the <laughs> the, the librarian and the person who has organized the event has prepped everybody. Conversely, you know, when you walk in and they look at you and they wonder if you're there to fix the air conditioning, (laughs) you know, (laughs) then then you start, you're like, okay, all right, now I know what I'm getting into.
0: Tell me about one of your more recent books, Not Your All-American Girl. So um, Not Your All-American Girl is
1: the sibling book to a book I wrote with my friend Madeline Rosenberg. And they feature characters who have Chinese and Jewish parents. Because I'm Chinese and Madeline is Jewish and we said we should write the book that only we can write. And Not Your All-American Girl features Lauren who um, is in a friendship where she's kind of used to being the second banana. She's just, you know, she thinks that her friend Tara is always the star and she's okay with that. But when they decide to try out for the school play and uh, Lauren has this amazing audition, she thinks maybe this is my time to shine. But what what happens is she is not cast as the lead because the director tells her the lead is supposed to be an all-American girl and she doesn't look the part. And she's rather devastated by this. And to make matters worse, Tara gets the the lead. And and they have a lot of feelings and conversations to work out, partly because Tara is a, a little bit insensitive to Lauren's feelings. And also, Lauren needs to kind of reassert her place in the world and not let these things deter her from her love of music. So this is the moment uh, after the audition, and she and she knows it has just gone wonderfully. When I got home from school, my grandmothers were attempting to watch Star Search on the VCR. Waipua, my Chinese grandmother, lives with us. And Safta my Jewish grandmother, lives around the corner. It's convenient for arguing and watching Star Search. It's the only thing they have in common besides me, my brother David, and Bert Bacharach, the man who wrote Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. They've been fighting over me pretty much since I was a baby, when Softa wanted to put me in lacy pink or white dresses, and Waipua said white was for mourning and that I should wear red, a happy, lucky color. Sometimes I feel like a toy being pulled between them, each grandmother hoping I'll be more Jewish or more Chinese. But right then, if you asked me what I was, I would say a singer.
0: What age group is reading Not Your All-American Girl? I would say uh, ages 8 to 12. Juanita, you're recommending a graphic novel for teenagers called Almost American Girl. Why are you putting that forth? What do you love about it?
3: Well, so I'll say, first of all, that um, my daughter uh, took it away from me the second that it arrived at at the house. Uh, so I will say that the the first appeal of it is that it is a graphic novel. And I'm choosing almost American girl because it is not just a story about an Asian American character, but about a girl who becomes an Asian American. Um, it's Robin Ha's own story. And she was born in Seoul, South Korea and did not move to America until she was 14. Mm-hmm. So there's so much familiar about it. Just anybody period who's ever been to a new school ever or moved moved away from their friends, all of that is very familiar. But everything that's put in front of her is an obstacle, from her very strict Korean upbringing, to not knowing anything about English other than what she'd heard on a few TV shows, and then even coming in and trying to eat American candy, which is just revolting to her. It's so sweet, and she can't stand any American food. But in the end, she identifies as an almost American girl, she goes back to Seoul for a visit, and she realizes how different she has become. And she realizes that she is, in fact, an Asian American, and not an Asian or an American.
0: Wendy, you also have a story of immigration, another book you'd recommend, but it's for younger kids.
3: Yes, I'm
1: recommending the picture book, Wishes, by Monty Thu um, And it's about a Vietnamese family getting ready um, to immigrate halfway around the world. And it is just so achingly beautiful. The prose is spare. The illustrations are rich. I mean, from the moment you read it, it just reaches into your soul and connects you with the characters. And she, there's a, there are these wonderful lines where every object has a wish. The sun wishes it was cooler, The sea wishes it was calmer, and it just reminded me of when I was you know, when we were all kids. And you think that inanimate objects have feelings, that they are more alive than maybe the adults are giving them credit for. And I just think it's just such a beautifully rich story, and so um, needed in these times that we have right now.
0: Wendy, you work also in children's criminal justice, along with the children's writing that you do. Do you see the work as related one to the other?
1: Well, I used to work in juvenile justice policy. Now I work in pretrial justice policy. And I absolutely see a connection between the two jobs. They are both steeped in a love of justice. That one thing children really ache for and really have an innate desire for is, is righteousness, right? Is to have things be done in a in a good and fair way right that's like one of the first that's one of the first abstractions we learn right when you say that's not fair you know you have that that sense deep inside of you i would say the other huge connection i see is this discussion about race and equity i saw it happening in children's literature before i saw it happening in the criminal legal system where we're we're having these really you know profound conversations about how we are going to do better I think working in the in the criminal legal side has made me really think deeply about is how we treat other people and how we often treat people as disposable or we treat people as almost worthy of banishment, you know, like how we think of people like that. And then that person goes away. And I, in um, The Great Wall of Lucy Wu, there's a bully.
0: That's your first book.
1: That's my first book. and And the bully just kind of goes away at the end. Now, you know, and more recently, you know, in Not Your All-American Girl, you know, Lauren has a best friend who hurts her, you know, who hurts her in, in a really deep way. And you, you can't walk away. You know, she tries to find a way for them to make repair and do what's right. And then I just turned in another book where it, you know, I'm kind of exploring the same idea of what does justice look like? How do we do right by each other? And why why are our current systems so bad at it. You know, why don't we have more channels for having people have, you know, to be in dialogue with each other and to really think about how, you know, how can I make up this thing to you? How do we, how do we have a better relationship instead of just saying, okay, now you go back to your corner and I'll go back to my corner and we're done.
0: Juanita, are you seeing a lot of other children's book authors also grappling with these kinds
3: of issues? I am. And actually, that's a special focus of the Virginia Children's Book Festival. Right here in Farmville, we have the Moten Museum, in large part because Barbara Johns was a 16-year-old girl who led a strike out of the Moten School, which was the black school here in Prince Edward County. And it was the only student-led case in Brown versus the Board of Education. And so the schools here were closed for, I believe, five years. We have uh, a civil rights and children's literature program with the Moten and at the Moten, with the authors who come, because it's— I always say civil rights are not a done deal, you know, and it's so funny that Wendy works in justice because um, Terry Canfield uh, wrote Girl from the Tar Paper School, the children's book about mm. Barbara Johns, and she's also in justice. And she felt drawn to to write a children's book about that particular case and about Barbara Johns. So I think it's been around for a long time, justice in children's books, um, big or small, whether it's justice on the playground or some of these really bigger issues that we may have hoped would go away or didn't even realize were there. I'm I'm happy yeah. to see it.
0: Wendy, I just have time to ask you about a new picture book you have out called The Rice in the Pot goes round and round. You want singing a little bit oh. of that for me and telling me about the book.
1: <laughs> so um, this idea literally popped into my head on a drive home one Thanksgiving. We were coming home from my brother's house, and we had had Thanksgiving around his huge, beautiful, round Thanksgiving table with the lazy Susan in the middle. The words just came to me. I'll just take it from there. The rice in the pot goes round and round, round and round. Round and round the rice in the pot goes round and round at the table where my family gathers round. Yeah, yeah eats noodles going slurp, 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 slurp. Yeah, yeah eats noodles going slurp, slurp slurp at the table where my family gathers round. And then at the very end it ends When my family gets together it means I love you. I love you. I love you when my family gets together, it means I love you at the table where my family gathers round.
3: See, now she's already made her next program for the Virginia Children's <laughs> Book Festival. I have oh, to yeah. start building a really big lazy Susan so then we can have rice that goes around and Wendy can sing and everybody can eat. <laughs> See, thanks Wendy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Juanita Giles is executive director and co-founder of the Virginia Children's Book Festival, held at Longwood University each year. Wendy Shang is the author of many children's books, including The Great Wall of Lucy Wu, Not Your All-American Girl, and The Rice in the Pot Goes Round and Round. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. This hour, we're sharing summer reading recommendations of Asian American and Pacific Islander writers. Alex Peruganon is a professor of English and Filipino American culture at Northern Virginia Community College. He shares two memoirs by Filipino American authors whose ideas of the American dream are complete opposites. Alex, the first one is a classic of Asian American literature written in 1946 called America is in the Heart. Why did you pick that one?
4: The first time I I read it, it had such a, a meaningful impact, not only as a writer, a young writer at the time, but also as a Filipino American. And I never read anything written by Filipino American authors. And it told me that our stories are worth sharing. With, with a broader audience and not just within our own community.
0: This was written by a guy who actually grew up in the Philippines. You were born in Manila, but were raised in America. How did you relate to his story?
4: Well, the author is Carlos Bulasan, and he's from a province in the Philippines, Angasinan. And I arrived from the Philippines when I was around two years old. So I had really no memory of the Philippines, but still... His details in the setting, the interactions with the people, it it still resonated with me. It was a piece of my own culture. And also it related to the stories that my my folks told me in the islands. And so being able to see it in literature was was really impactful.
0: Read me a passage that really resonated with you from this book.
4: You know, the title itself, America is in the Heart, is meant to symbolize hope and the promise of better life for, for newcomers in America has this vision of what America could be, and he writes, America is also the nameless foreigner, the homeless refugee, the hungry boy begging for a job, and the black boy dangling on a tree. America is the illiterate immigrant who is ashamed that the world of books and intellectual opportunities is closed to him. We are all that nameless foreigner, that homeless refugee, that hungry boy, that illiterate immigrant, and that lynched black body. All of us, from the first Adams to the last Filipino, native-born or alien, educated or illiterate, we are America.
0: What part of that really hit you as a young man reading about this dystopian America as well as the America of Promise? Was it that he so clearly included Filipino Americans in the whole landscape?
4: I would say yes, but also that he recognizes and acknowledges the atrocities and the trauma that America has imparted. He still leaves us, though, with a sense of hope, that uh, the sense of inclusion, that um, those in America trying to better their circumstances, that they will be part of America's, you know, development.
0: So the other book you were going to recommend is written much more recently. In 2018, it's called America is not the heart. So that book was America is the heart. Her book is America is not the heart. Is that title a coincidence?
4: No, not at all. I, it's quite intentional where the the author for America is not the heart, Elaine Castillo, whereas America is in the heart by Bulasan, his title kind of reflects this um, idea of hope and promise. Castillo's work more reflects that... Uh, the heart and home is family and being with those you love and who you love. What's the plot? Uh, Castillo's characters live in this new world set in the 90s of the Bay Area in California. So our protagonist in America is not in the heart. is um, um, Her name is Geronimo. She's called Hero. and She comes from a really complex background, from a, a very affluent family, um, involved in politics and has a lot of power in the Philippines, and she serves as a doctor for the resistance against Marcos, kind of in defiance of her of her family standing. And she immigrates to the United States, uh, and specifically in Milpitas, a suburb in San Jose, California, very heavily populated um, Filipino American community there. And um, she lives with a relative and his family. Castillo's work is very complex, and maybe it also reflects the complexity of Filipino-American culture. <laughs> you know, In Bulasan's world, Filipinos are mainly men, right? They're day laborers, they're farm workers and migrants who jump freight trains and travel along the western coast of the United States. In Castillo's world, in the 90s, Bay Area, the Filipinos are nurses, they're restaurant workers, they're faith healers as well. So it's different in, from Bulasan's work in that these characters are more American in the in a way that only their parents can dream of. They have a, a, a much closer and deeper relationship with America than their parents or grandparents did.
0: And yet they're also super Filipino, right? Yes. <laughs> it's,
4: a, it's a great point because in San Jose, there's a very large Filipino-American community. Um, in Casio's story, Heroes really surrounded by by Filipinos. It's very similar to what I I grew up with. You know, I grew up in a suburb outside of Los Angeles. I I, <laughs> I joke with my buddies and and say that we we're all we're a dime a dozen. We could recognize Filipinos mm. just by how they look.
0: Is it a look or a way?
4: <laughs> I would say po- possibly both. You know, uh, in like parties I attended when I was a kid, there, there's, you're right. There's this way that. Uh, these kids kind of s- spoke and how they walked and how they composed themselves the kind of music they listened to the clothing that they wore you know this is the uh, late 80s and the 90s there is this <laughs> kind of method of what a a Filipino American was in the uh, in southern california in the 80s and 90s
0: was that a Filipino American group that you're part of as a very young boy that was called a B-boy crew. This is a this is a dance group, but a sort of a street dance group, right?
4: Right, right. And you know in the uh, 80s where breakdancing and pop locking and uh, B-boying in general is very popular. I think if you were part of a dance crew it <laughs> as a kid, it it gave um, it's a, a, a lot of uh, respect among the community, you know, if you knew how to dance, if you knew the, had some choreographed dancing with other dancers, and if you were able to battle, battle out other groups, and it was almost a, a symbol of status at the time. I think it's part of the Filipino culture, American culture at the time. You had to know how to dance. You had had to know at least somebody who who DJed, you know, and part of the conversation was... Um, being able to keep up with the popular songs, songs that we could use to choreograph our dances to.
0: Castillo in this book peppers her writing with these languages that she does not translate. Were you familiar with those? Did you ever hear those languages growing up?
4: I was only familiar with uh, Tagalog, uh, along with English, the primary language of the Philippines. The other languages she includes are Ilocano and Pangasinan, and it it's, was such a powerful choice to not include the translations, to not even italicize the font she wrote in these languages. It could be unsettling, I think, or, or even jarring for, for a few readers. But why I think it's so empowering is that it's almost as if she's indirectly telling her readers, hey, this is not just for those who can understand English or read English. I'm writing for groups of other people as well.
0: Alex Peruganon is a professor of English and Filipino-American culture at Northern Virginia Community College. My next guest is Spencer Tricker, a professor of English at Longwood University. He compares two Chinese immigrant writers who take on San Francisco's Chinatown, but nearly 100 years apart. He also recommends an essay about the oceanic culture of the Pacific Islands.
5: Um, so the first book that I wanted to talk about, it's entitled Mrs. Spring Fragrance by um, the author Edith Maud Eaton, better known by her literary pseudonym, which is Suisse and Far. That's normally the way that you hear it pronounced. Uh, she was a very fascinating figure from the turn of the 20th century At a time when uh, there wasn't a lot of intermarriage among races, particularly between Asian and European races in the United States, she came from a family that was mixed um, in that way. Her father was English, her mother was Chinese. Um, She grew up actually in Canada, in Montreal, and uh, later spent much of her writing career on the West Coast this is now so much more of a common experience, those kinds of mixed families, right? And so it's it's remarkable to find somebody who was kind of speaking from that condition under, you know, a very different set of historical circumstances.
0: Mrs. Spring Fragrance. Mm-hmm. Great name.
5: Yeah. It it was published, it was the only book of her stories published during her lifetime in 1912. One thing that I think is really notable about these stories is that, you know, nowadays you sometimes if you if you think about or listen to uh, discussions of Asian Americans uh, and Asian American c- communities in the United States will often come across this term, the model minority. But in the nineteenth century, um, that was completely different. There started to be, you know, tremendous anti-Chinese sentiment and and violence against them. It was within this climate that Sui Sinfar was, was trying to provide a more sympathetic portrait of a major you know part of her family, her mother's people. Um, so that this it's an interesting thing when you look back on her work that she's really trying, especially in this collection, Mrs. Spring Fragrance, to provide an inside view and a, a kind of sympathetic portrayal of uh, Asian family life and, and showcase the sort of depth of feeling and familial bonds between parents and children, for example, at a time when um, there were all these rampant and very virulent denigrating portrayals of particularly Chinese men who were predominated at that time.
0: What other book do you have next for us? Are we staying in Chinatown?
5: Yes. Um, so um, the next one that I thought uh, I'd, I'd talk about is a later novel called Bone from 1993, and that's written by uh, the Asian-American writer uh, Fei-Mian Ng. And I think it's a beautiful uh, and richly kind of resonant look into a Chinatown world that I don't think really exists anymore in San Francisco. I mean, I think everyone's very well aware at this point of just how unbelievably expensive it is in San Francisco, how the real estate market has gone there. And uh, and so there's, you know, social transformations have, have really changed the place. But uh, in this novel, Ng really kind of offers a, a look at the, the sort of working class, um First-generation Chinese Americans, and uh, the the protagonist's father is somebody who's worked in shipping as a you know as a sailor, uh, and and the mother has has been a seamstress uh, working in a sweatshop, and at times the protagonist Layla also has helped her with that work. So, uh, in the earlier part of this year, right, we were uh, all shocked and appalled to see what happened in Atlanta and the shootings. One of the things that I kept seeing in coverage was the importance of of thinking about the kinds of things that that women in particular in the Asian American community are saddled with in terms of prejudices and, and the kinds of work that they end up doing. I think it, it was massage parlors that were brought into focus with that event. But here in Ng's novel, we, we see um, the work that goes on in these sweatshops making clothing. And I found it to be a, a very affecting novel for me. I really could feel and hear the sounds of Chinatown and it, it brought back snatches of Cantonese and things that I had you know grown up hearing in my own childhood.
0: You also have an essay by a Pacific Islander, an author that you think would be fun for us to
5: read. Yeah, I I do. And uh it's it's a longstanding problem that Pacific Islanders and their and their distinct cultures get enfolded um, or, or just simply placed under the umbrella of Asian American communities, right? And 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 it's worth pausing for a minute just to say how capacious or large of a term Asian America really is, right? This is we're talking about, you know, China, India, uh, a whole array of of, of very populous countries uh, with many, many internal differentiations. uh, And then add to the mix Pacific Islander cultures, which have their own complexity. So I I wanted to make sure that we could talk briefly at least about um, some Pacific Islander writing. And so the figure that I'm calling attention to here is a, a writer who, his name is Apeli Haofa. And the book is called We Are the Ocean, and it contains uh, several essays, but also some short fiction and poetry. He is a Tongan and uh, I believe Fijian in background, but grew up in a variety of places. And uh, And he has a very influential essay called Our Sea of Islands that I think is well worth reading because in that essay, Haofa really pushes forth a a sense of of Pacific identity, an Oceanian identity. And he really is pretty adamant on that term Oceania, thinking of the region as a unified and expansive community that brings these disparate island nations together about the importance of thinking regionally, right? Because it is often the case that um, small Pacific islands are neglected on the world stage. And in in sort of linking them together and thinking about their long historical connections and the way that Polynesian islanders, for example, and and other islanders from other parts of the the Pacific uh, voyaged very intentionally and very skillfully, how the sea should be thought or the Pacific Ocean should be thought as a connective tissue, really, for all of these, these communities that share a lot in common in terms of their languages and so forth and, and their cultural practices. Especially, right, there's an, there's an environmentalist emphasis that these are the sorts of places that are, um, that are very much at risk as uh, climate change impacts our world and, and we see sea levels rise, right? Uh, so what, what I think is so beautiful about this collection of essays and the essay itself is that it really reminds us of just how magnificent the cultures of those places are and despite a, a long litany of, of kind of, you know, abuses and neglects that they've endured, um, they are this people that deserve our attention and um, and that, you know, we should really um, embrace the, the heritage they bring to us as a world community.
0: Spencer Tricker is a professor of English at Longwood University. Next, we have Louisa A. Igloria, poet laureate of Virginia and professor of English at Old Dominion University. She shares two graphic novels and a collection of nature essays.
6: I Was Their American Dream is written and illustrated by Malika Garib. She is an artist, a journalist, and a writer based in D.C. Uh, The blurbs describe this graphic memoir as something that looks up uh, at how she grows up half Egyptian, half Filipino, and 100% American. But I just think it's a really fun book where she explores stories and memories about growing up biracial with a Catholic mom and a Muslim dad. She talks about her parents' individual immigrant stories, their eventual divorce, but the ways in which they continue to stay in touch with family, and these 100 and more maddening but also lovable ways in which our families are so distinctly families, if you know what I mean. Um, In it, there's also a mini tutorial on how to draw and write a zine. There's even a microaggressions bingo page. And there's, (laughs) yeah, I think that's so fun. But one of the things that I appreciate most about this book is how it portrays the immigrant story as not just another FOB or fresh off the boat story. Like before her parents came to America, They were already professionals in their own right with skills that they brought with them to the U.S., whereas typically you might hear or see or read of the American dream uh, as something that immigrants come to America in order to achieve and that it's only when they're here that they find the education or the means to make it. So this is a refreshing new take on that. You're also putting forth a book called Hello, Universe by Mm -hmm. a Filipino author
0: Is it a children's book?
6: It is. It's a children's book, but I'd say uh, it's a book that everyone should read. So Erin Entrada Kelly was born and raised in Lake Charles, Louisiana, but she now lives in Delaware. Her mother is a Filipina immigrant, and she talks about growing up and being aware that she was the only kid in her neighborhood who had an immigrant parent. And she writes because she knows how important it is for children to see themselves in books. But in terms of the narrative itself, Hello Universe explores... Uh, the subjects of friendship and bullying. And in in the book, there's a group of preteen friends. They're mostly like, I say like 11 years old and they're each so distinctly themselves. There's a Filipino American boy. There's a Japanese American girl who believes she has psychic powers. And her sister, there's a girl who is deaf. And there's the neighborhood bully who basically provides a catalyzing situation so that each character is able to step out of themselves and greet something bigger and more unknown, but also full of potential. And without, you know, going into spoilers necessarily, that's Uh the hello universe of the title.
0: It's interesting. You talk about the author, Aaron Entrada Kelly, writing about her mother's experience, Mm -hmm. you also write about your own mother in your recent published collection, Maps for Migrants and Ghosts.
6: Yes, that's true. I think that's also uh, an aspect of having felt like my life in the diaspora as a writer is constantly one that Uh, makes these gestures of looking back. I'm constantly looking at the past, looking at memories and mining these memories for stories and for, you know, like illuminating things for my own life. And so this is a story about a history and it's a story about larger things than I am. But it's also a book that's full of very personal memories. And here is one um, poem that is about three basically three memories three pictures that I remember of my mother and it's called mother three pictures she is beautiful in that photograph where they are dancing in a room full of other couples she has a beauty mole penciled on her cheek slightly to the right of her lip her eyebrows are two perfect arches her hair a dark beehive I think there are dots on her dress. Where is this photograph? I would like very much to have it. Beautiful. We just have time for one more book, and this
0: is a book you love by another Asian American author. It's called World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments.
6: Yes, I'm so glad I have a chance to talk about this book um, by Amy Nezuko Matatil, who is a wonderful poet, lovely human being. I have known her for years. But last year, she came out with this book, which is a collection of nature essays, her very first nonfiction work. Um, and it has gorgeous illustrations by Fumi Mini Nakamura. Now, Amy's Indian father was a geneticist, and her Filipina mother was a microbiologist. And so the curiosity and wonder about nature that's on every page of this book was instilled in her as a child by her parents, but especially by her father, who took her and her sister on hikes and taught them how to identify plants and constellations. She's also spoken about how growing up she didn't recall seeing any nature books written by people of color and how it's so important to have literature about the world, about nature and science, written by those who look like you. So here are the first two sentences of the first essay titled Catalpa Tree. A Catalpa can give two brown girls in western Kansas a green umbrella from the sun. Don't get too dark, too dark, our mother would remind us as we ambled out into the relentless Midwestern light. And when I read that, I was completely smitten and I felt invited in. And if in the summer you can still find dancing frogs on some rock ledge near water, or in winter if you can glimpse a red-spotted newt skittering under the surface of ice, you know, these are Amy's words from the book, these are also reminders that there's still so much hope for our planet. If only we would stop to look and really pay attention. Perhaps we can still slow down that doomsday clock, that apocalypse clock. You know, we're on the edge of environmental extinction, we are told. But maybe there's hope. And these essays, I think, give me a lot of that.
0: Louisa A. Igloria is Poet Laureate of Virginia and professor of English at Old Dominion University. Her most recent collection of poems is Maps for Migrants and Ghosts. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. uvahealth.com With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.